Our sermon text today, Mark 7, 24 to 8, 21, is a glorious, glorious portion of Scripture. It closes, really, the first major section of Mark's Gospel, the section which asks, Who is Jesus? And begins the second, now, middle section, which asks, What does discipleship to Jesus look like? But it might be wise to get some biblical and historical background under our belts first before pressing ahead. Just give me three minutes to lay some foundation here. In the centuries before Jesus' birth, God graciously and uniquely disclosed himself to the people of Israel. He revealed himself to the biological descendants of a man named Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews. And we read of that revelatory disclosure in the first three quarters of our Bibles, the part that we call the Old Testament. In those pages, God makes certain promises to Abraham's children. And for centuries, Israel lived in the hope that God would soon fulfill those promises. Those promises were varied in nature, but they basically revolved around three key concepts. The nature of God's kingdom, the messianic ruler of God's kingdom, and the citizens of God's kingdom. Sad to say, Israel misunderstood all three. A a germ of truth was there, but it was mingled with great theological error. They had misread their own scriptures. For example... Israel believed the messianic ruler of God's kingdom would be a powerful king in David's line from the tribe of Judah. And yes, that's correct. The Bible teaches that. But Israel believed this Messiah would be a military ruler, a great general king who would destroy the Gentile superpowers of the day, be they the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, uh, the Greeks, the Roman Empire, whoever. And just to be clear, guys, a Gentile is any person who is not Jewish. It's an ethnic category. I'm going to be using that term a lot today. So it was believed that through militaristic conquest, God's anointed one, he would expand the borders of Israel. He would crush the Gentile nations and rule over them with an iron scepter. And then through an appeal to the law of Moses, King Messiah would restore the nation of Israel to righteousness and consolidate his eternal kingdom. His dynasty would never end. Son after son after son would replace the king before. It would be an unending dynasty. And this thought the Jews was the nature of God's kingdom in all of its glory. An eternal theocratic state, a military powerhouse arriving on the geopolitical scene with a big bang, A big flash, and its citizens comprised of the biological children of Abraham, with the Gentile nations trodden underfoot. That had been the expectation for centuries, so that when Jesus arrives on the scene, the one who is God's anointed, his Christ, he's murdered as a blasphemer. Why? Because Jesus explodes all of those categories. The message of the kingdom Jesus preaches is at variance with the political and ethnic ideals held by the Jews. He's not the kind of Messiah, the kind of king, the kind of Christ that the people are expecting. We've seen this again and again in our sermon series. 
Jesus, for instance, he, Jesus preaches in his parables that the kingdom of God comes in stages. It doesn't arrive in a big bang cataclysmic flash. There, there's an already here, not yet arrived tension to the kingdom of God. And the nature of the Messiah's rule is spiritual. It's not political. This Messiah reigns from a cross. But perhaps the biggest stumbling block of all is that Jesus acts as if Yahweh is not the tribal deity of the Jews alone. But rather, he's the God of all people, Gentiles included. Scandalous, scandalous. As far as, far as I know, we have no Jewish brothers or sisters in Christ with us visiting today. So I'll say this. Gentile Christians, our sermon passage today shines a glorious spotlight on what we've been rescued from. As a people, what we've been rescued from. This text helps us connect the salvation historical dots. We were in a hopeless position. As Gentiles, as non-Jews, we had no share in the covenants that promised messianic salvation. But now, in Christ Jesus, and through the blessings of the new covenant, the door to God's salvation blessing is open to all. Open to all. In Mark 7, Mark 8, we see God working out our salvation a salvation extended toward our pagan ancestors, as promised in Old Testament Scripture, even as Jesus the Messiah first ministers among his own people, the children of Abraham, the lost sheep of Israel. Here we see God's love for a people who are not his people, people excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, people without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, we Gentiles who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Friend, if this text is understood properly, it should cause Gentile Christians to rejoice and inspire Gentile unbelievers to hope and trust in Jesus. So if you look at your bulletins, point number one, Gentile Christian... I'm, I'm preaching to you, first and foremost, Gentile Christian. Our salvation begins with Jesus' witness to Israel. It's, it's been a while. We're, we're coming off a three-week Advent series. But you'll recall the passage in Mark's Gospel that we last considered. This was on December the 10th, Mark 7, 1 to 23. In that text, Jesus has a major blowout with the religious leaders over purity matters. And the authority of the oral tradition, the oral law, the Mishnah. Uh, that might serve, I think, as a clue as to why Jesus now takes this 120-mile journey through the Gentile territory of Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis. Uh, that blowout wasn't a friendly little difference of opinion. In the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus' teaching is undermining the religious life of the nation of Israel. To their thinking, Jesus is a man who is leading the people astray. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the religious police. 
Jesus had called the religious leaders hypocrites. He had said that they worship God in vain, that they nullify God's laws. Those are serious, serious charges for an itinerant preacher from the sticks to make against the religious elite. Now, this is only an hypothesis. Uh, Strictly speaking, the text doesn't tell us why Jesus makes this extensive journey into Gentile territory. But it's reasonable to assume Jesus' life is in some danger and he needs time for things to cool down. And that hypothesis is further supported by the fact that Jesus doesn't teach. He doesn't preach during this excursion into Gentile territory. Did you ever notice that? Mark makes 15 mentions, 15 different references so far to Jesus teaching people and preaching, but not here, not in this whole section. Jesus does mighty works of exorcism. He heals people. He feeds the hungry, but there's no mention of him preaching. That's significant. The omission of teaching amongst the Gentiles invites explanation. I just put that out to you. Can you think of why he might not have done that? Look at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. And Tyre is in modern-day Lebanon. Uh, Sidon, too. It's in Lebanon. And I need us to remember that for later. It's super important. Lebanon. This is a Gentile region, and Tyre represents the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, a Palestinian Jew could expect to encounter. Tyre was infamous. Just read the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. The prophet spends more time denouncing Tyre than any other place. This is the equivalent of Jesus paying a visit to Sodom and Gomorrah. For a Jew... Jesus is behaving in a way that is culturally extreme. He's deliberately walking into the heart of Gentile paganism and historic anti-Semitism. But even in Gentile territory, Jesus' reputation precedes him. He can't keep his presence a secret. Look at verse 25. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek Born in Syrian Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now remember, according to non-biblical Jewish tradition, the Messiah was supposed to expel and subdue the Gentiles. He was supposed to rule over them with an iron scepter, not visit them in their hometowns and help them. Most Jews in the first century shared Without question, the prejudice that Gentiles defiled by touch. Their touch was unclean. They they thought uh, Samaritan women were menstruants from the cradle. I actually thought that. Their uncleanliness was regarded as something innate. Gentiles were impure simply because they were Gentiles. So of all the people to approach Jesus in Mark's gospel with a request, this is the person from a Jewish perspective with the most strikes against them. First, she's a woman, not the gender to be, according to the tradition of the elders. They had a ranking, they had the declension, Gentile, woman, slave. On top of that, she's a Greek Gentile from the infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. I wonder what 
the disciple Levi, the despised Jewish tax collector, was thinking at this moment. I wonder, was he thinking, will Jesus be as gracious to this pagan from Tyre as he was with me? Will he be as gracious to this woman as the unclean outcasts that he accepts back in Israel? Doesn't look too hopeful at first, does it? Jesus responds to the lady's humble request to help her demon-possessed daughter with a short parable. And this is where we move into the heart of the story. Verse 26b, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. All right, let's be honest. To our cultural ears, Jesus sounds like a redneck racist here, doesn't he? Our Lord calling this woman and her daughter dogs ranks among Jesus' most offensive sayings. In this day, dogs were associated with uncleanness because they ate garbage and carrion and corpses. Uh, in the tradition of the Jewish rabbis, dog was a term for the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of creatures. And it was in this sense that the word dog was applied to Gentiles. Uh, it was a nickname. Gentiles were ignorant, godless, pagan idolaters. So why in the world is Jesus using this nasty term? Three things to bear in mind. First, we would be mistaken to believe Jesus regards this woman and her daughter as unclean dogs. What did we just learn in our last Mark sermon? What was the theological point Jesus just established in chapter 715? Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. There is no such thing as defiled objects or defiled persons. It's, what in the, it's what's in the heart. That's what defiles a person. So if Jesus regards this woman as being an unclean dog, he's contradicting himself within the space of just a few verses. He's not contradicting himself. The second thing to bear in mind is that Jesus doesn't use the usual word for an unkempt, half-wild street mongrel. But rather, a small lapdog. It's a diminutive form, like a little doggy. A small lapdog, a dog that could be kept in the house as a pet. Friend, you may not be a dog lover, uh, but even you must feel a lot different about a half-wild street mongrel eating carrion and garbage compared to a cute little lapdog like our own adorable Yorkshire Terrier, Bertie Wooster, right? And, and the fact that the woman refers to herself and her daughter with the same term shows she's not taking what Jesus says in a hostile and contemptuous sense. She uses the same term herself. The third thing to bear in mind, Jews considered themselves to be the children of God. They were set apart from all the other nations of the earth because of their inclusion in the covenant with Abraham and because they possessed Torah. They possessed the law. And that was true. No other people on earth shared in those same privileges. I think uh, the parallel account in Matthew 15, 21 might give us some help here. There's no need to turn there. I'll just read it for us. But listen to this. 
Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. Notice, Jesus repulses her request for aid when she addresses him as son of David. She's addressing him as if she herself belonged to the old covenant people. She doesn't. She, she's a Gentile, right? So his disciples come, came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, the theological wheels need to start moving in our minds when we hear our Lord say something like that. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Folks, the issue at stake between Jesus and the woman is whether Jesus is sent by God to the, lost, to the children, to the lost sheep of Israel, or to the dogs. And the woman maintains the same distinction between children and dogs in her reply to Jesus, but with one slight change. Whereas Jesus refers to Israel as literally biological children, right? Let the children eat all they want. The woman refers to Israel by another Greek word, which is more inclusive. It's more like household, implying both children and servants. It's it's a more inclusive word. Mark 7, 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That is, the crumbs of a mixed household, including both biological children and servants. That's a deliberate change of word on her part. Jesus didn't use that word. But the change in terminology suggests she understands the mercies of God extend beyond ethnic Israel, beyond the children of Abraham. It's amazing. This Syrophoenician woman has an understanding of the kingdom of God that outstrips the understanding of any Jew we've met so far in Mark's gospel. Do you see what's happening here? That the basic issue between Jesus and the woman is not whether Gentiles have any claim at all on God's mercy. It's not that but rather the relation of the Gentile claim to God's mercy and the Jewish claim to God's mercy. Jesus doesn't deny the woman's request. When he says, first, let the children eat all they want, Jesus is simply establishing a temporal priority in his mission. It doesn't exclude other hungry mouths. The servant of the Lord must first... Restore the tribes of Jacob and then be a light to the Gentile nations, which is precisely what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold of the Messiah. Listen to this. Isaiah 42, 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, the Lord says to the servant of the Lord, who is Jesus, hear this, it is, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small a thing. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Gentile believers, there's the Old Testament promise of our salvation. 
Our future inclusion in the covenant community of God. This is why our souls have been saved, even though we're not the biological children of Abraham. Because Jesus is a light for Gentiles that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Syrophoenician woman has great faith. Her reply to Jesus in verse 28 shows her understanding and her acceptance of Israel's salvation historical privilege. But also that she's trusting in Jesus' surplus of grace. She believes Jesus' provision of bread for Israel will be abundant enough to have some left over to provide for her daughter. Jill, when we feed our dog Birdie some of the crumbs from our dinner table, are we robbing our son, Marty, of his own food? Is Bertie putting his paws up on the table and making off with an entire roast beef? No, no, he's just eating a few crumbs from our surplus. No one in the Bell household is going to bed hungry. There is more than enough food at our table to share some crumbs with the family lapdog. So, when Jesus says in verse 27, First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What he's saying is, in an amplified paraphrase, My ministry to Israel is their salvation historical privilege. I've come to them first, in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. It would be inappropriate to interrupt the meal and allow the household dogs to carry off the children's bread from the table. The time has not yet come in history for the blessing to be extended to Gentiles. And then she responds with great faith, let the children of Israel be fed. I understand that. They take priority in your ministry, Jesus, but allow the family lapdogs to enjoy the crumbs. There doesn't have to be an interruption in the meal. What I'm requesting isn't a whole loaf of bread, but just a single crumb. Out of your surplus, Jesus, supply for my daughter's need. Verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So do you see? The woman's ready acceptance of the Lord's response, her simple cry for help, and her understanding that Gentiles had to be fed only after the children of Israel had first been given their spiritual food, all combined to win the healing that she is seeking. But the irony here is amazing. After all Jesus' teaching to the crowds, after all his private sessions with his disciples, No one has really understood a thing. Yes, this Gentile woman understands Jesus' mission and receives his unambiguous commendation. How is that possible? How can such a thing be? The answer is, this woman is the first person in Mark's gospel to understand one of Jesus' parables. She gets it. She has ears to hear The brief parable of the children and the dogs at the dinner table has disclosed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. She gets it. Jesus' earthly witness to Jews must take priority over his public witness to Gentiles. But Gentiles are by no means excluded. It's just that our Lord's ministry to Gentiles doesn't take place prior to or apart from his witness to Israel. 
my fellow Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Our inclusion in God's salvation, it isn't an accident. It isn't an over, an afterthought. It's part of God's loving providence deriving from the ministry of Jesus himself. We see that here. Our salvation begins with Jesus' witness to Israel, which is why Mark has a second multiplication of loaves and fishes in chapter 8, so close to the the heels of the first multiplication in chapter 6. Only this time, it's a Gentile crowd. Did you know that? It's 4,000 Gentiles he's feeding in Mark chapter 8. And that miracle is illustrating the same point that's being made here. The healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter opens the door to the possibility that Gentiles might also be fed without filching bread from the children of Abraham. And just as Jesus feeds Jews in a Jewish desert in chapter 6, so he feeds Gentiles in a Gentile desert in chapter 8. Just jump ahead for one moment to chapter 8, verse 1. I'm not going to exegete this verse by verse. I'm just going to read it aloud and then show us some uh, some parallels. Chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. This is a crowd of Gentiles. There is 4,000 of them, according to verse 20. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place, or literally this desert, can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Beloved, this feeding of 4,000 Gentiles shows that Jesus isn't simply a Redeemer. He isn't simply a Messiah like Moses or David. Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the Messiah offering redemption to more than just the people of Israel. Mark is going at this theme, hammer and tongs. He thinks it's super important. Out of the surplus of God's gracious salvation bounty, There's more than enough food to go around once Israel has been fed. So do you see the miracle of the 4,000 is a picture of the Gentile dogs being fed after the children of Israel out of the surplus of Jesus' bounty. So fellow Gentiles, rejoice. Rejoice. Now we can be part of the household of God. Now we can be God's children through our union with his son, Jesus Christ. However, and brothers and sisters, God wants us to understand this. He wants us to worship him for it. He wants us to be connecting the salvation historical dots. Our inclusion in the family of God didn't fall out of the decontextualized blue sky. And Mark clearly shows this in our second point, that our salvation fulfills Old Testament prophecy. 
Does that get you excited? Our salvation fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Praise God. Back to chapter 7, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Altogether, that's about 120 miles. That's a long journey. So Jesus is now deep into a Gentile territory. What are we seeing here? We're seeing Jesus' willful inclusion of the non-Jewish world in his ministry. Verse 32. There are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. And, and this may be one of those events in Jesus' ministry we read about and I think completely miss the point. This is one of those familiarity breeds carelessness passages I talked about a few weeks back. We all know how this story ends. Jesus heals the man and he can speak and he can hear without impediment. The man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. That's the end of the miracle. We say, oh, I saw that one coming. It, it seems to be yet another healing miracle, one of thousands Jesus likely performed during his ministry. So what's the big deal? Why is this miracle anything special? Or is it? Well, in the New Testament, it was originally, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for the man's speech impediment is used in only one other place in the whole Bible. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament passage, Isaiah 35. Again, going back to Isaiah. There's a huge theme of Gentile salvation in that book. That ties the two passages together. Isaiah 35 was written 500 years before Jesus was born. And it's a passage which speaks of the Gentile inhabitants of Lebanon, the same area Jesus is ministering in here. The Gentile inhabitants of Lebanon rejoicing in the joy of God as deaf ears are unstopped and mute tongues shout for joy. Oh, that means as Jesus heals this mute man's tongue and grants him hearing, he's announcing the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. The day of the Lord has arrived in the person of Jesus. That's what this is announcing. The day of the Lord has arrived in the person of Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 35.1, or you can turn there too. Isaiah 35.1. Again, Mark, Mark is expecting his readers just to pick up on this. He wants us to see the he's, he's salvation historical connections. Isaiah 35, 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Why? Because the Lord is coming in the person of Jesus. That's why. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of God. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the splendor of God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Verse 5, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And again, that word for mute tongue is found only here in the Bible, only here, and in Mark chapter 7. Both passages take place in Lebanon. Both passages deal with the deaf hearing, the the mute speaking, right? It's no coincidence. It links Mark 7 unmistakably with this Isaiah quotation. 
Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by ministering to pagan Gentiles. And Mark's saying, look at this, see this, rejoice in this. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Epitha, which means be opened. Okay, why in the world is Jesus sticking his fingers in the man's ears and then spitting and touching the man's tongue? Uh, to us, that sounds completely bizarre. Uh, but healing in the ancient world was very much a hands-on activity. Uh, even today, when we go to a GP, we want them to touch us. We want them to examine us tactilely, right? And not make a diagnosis from across the room, all aloof like house MD. The Gentiles literally begged Jesus to lay his hands upon the man, and so that's what he does. The man can't hear. Jesus can't speak to him. So by going through this elaborate procedure, I think Jesus could be telling the man to expect a healing. It's coming up. Jesus acts out what he intends to do. Verse 35, At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with, with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, bam, that's in our face, Isaiah 35 language. God's salvation comes to the pagan Gentiles of Lebanon. Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament scripture. Gentile Christian, our salvation begins with Jesus' witness to Israel and fulfills Old Testament prophecy. God wants you to know that and to worship him because of it. Rejoice in that. What did God prophesy to Israel in the Old Testament? I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. That's our spiritual pedigree. Wallowing in darkness and pagan ignorance until the Lord saved us. By his electing grace. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? We looked at this text a couple weeks ago. He said, don't forget that you Gentiles, you used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. Who were, what, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it was affected only, only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. He's saying, all, the, all you Gentiles, you were living in those days apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. That's a death sentence. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in the world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now... You've been brought near to the shedding of his blood. It's such a glorious, glorious theme. I don't have time to unpack it further. Uh, we already considered this theme actually a few weeks ago. 
Um, we looked at uh, our last sermon in Mark's Gospel. I also went, you'll recall, I went to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, looked at that, also Ephesians chapter 2. So this very important theme has been dealt with the last two times Mark's been preached. So we're going to move on to our concluding point. And this concluding point now is a warning to us all. It's a warning that comes directly from Jesus. Point number four. Watch out for the yeast of unbelief. After feeding the 4,000, Jesus moves to the western part of the Sea of Galilee. He's still in Gentile territory. Chapter 8, verse 9b. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, or better, they began to dispute Jesus or oppose Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. The summer before going to university, I worked as a waiter at a marina restaurant in the Thousand Islands. And one day, a private investigator came into the restaurant to see the registry for the boats that were docked in the marina overnight. I was 19, and I thought that was pretty cool to give this private eye a helping hand. I'm a romantic, right? I, I was imagining some sort of Sam Spade murder mystery case going on. Uh, and so in violation of I don't know how many privacy laws, <laughs> I allowed this man to peruse the docking registry as he sat at the bar. I never found out, but now I assume what he was doing was snooping around on a marital infidelity case. Uh, adultery is a private investigator's bread and butter. It's never unsolved murder cases. That doesn't, almost never happens, right? In all likelihood, a suspecting husband or wife had hired this man to find proof that their spouse was cheating on them. Because a private investigator is never hired to find proof of marital fidelity, right? That doesn't, that's, that doesn't even make sense. What husband has ever reasoned I'm going to prove that my wife is faithful by hiring someone to spy on her, right? No, a husband's faith in his wife's fidelity is demonstrated by trust and active commitment. And the same thing applies to faith in Jesus. The test, this test that the Pharisees have set up, it isn't an objective test to discover Jesus' merit. They mean it as an obstacle. It's a stumbling block to discredit Jesus. That's why they're doing it. They're, they're, these men represent a challenge to Jesus. They're confronting him. And the sign they're requesting isn't merely for a miracle. After all, Jesus has been performing miracles nonstop. In fact, back in chapter 3, the Pharisees attribute his miracle working power to Satan. No, what they want is a sign from heaven. They want a confirmation of Jesus' ministry from God himself, an outward compelling proof of divine authority. The reason being, if Jesus is working in God's name, then God should divinely authorize his work, just, just like that, on command. But Jesus isn't about to start performing miracles on demand like a trained seal to vindicate his authority. Verse 12, Jesus sighed deeply, or groaned in spirit, it's a phrase used to denote the deepest dismay, despair, indignation, grief. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. 
And so in disgusted indignation at their lack of faith and their, their, their lack of personal response, Jesus gets into his boat and he sails away, leaving these rebellious skeptics on the shore. The gospel remains hidden to their unbelief. But Jesus hasn't left all opposition behind on the lakeshore. It's with him in the boat. And in these next verses, Jesus is moved to great exasperation. Verse 13. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And, and yeast here is a reference to disbelief in Jesus. It's the disposition to believe only if signs which compel faith are first produced. That's the context. It's the disposition to believe only if signs which compel faith are first produced. And Jesus sees this disbelief fermenting among the disciples in the boat. They don't know it, but they're being infected by a deadly cancer. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Remember when Jesus was brought before Herod, before his crucifixion? What did Herod want to see? Signs. He wanted to see him perform miracles in front of him. Now, we'd like to think, we'd like to assume that the disciples' proximity to Jesus over the opening eight chapters would have given them some insight into who he is. But no, the true meaning of Jesus' person and work, it still eludes them. Uh, The disciples aren't as hostile, but they're just as ignorant as the Pharisees and Herod. And so Jesus gives them a very stern, stern warning. Their proximity to him must grow into understanding and then understanding into true faith. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. That's why Jesus said this thing about yeast. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? I mean, he's pounding away at this. And don't you remember? Now, that's very interesting. Don't you remember? He's not saying, aren't you like kind of connecting all the salvation historical dots and seeing it's going to end up at the cross and the resurrection? He's saying, look back. Don't you remember? Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. So do you see, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their little faith and their inadequate understanding on the basis of what they should have already understood from the two feeding miracles. They haven't caught on. And Jesus says, you should have. Are your ears deaf? Are your eyes blind? At the first feeding of 5,000 Jewish men, Jesus shows that he is the divine shepherd king. Right? Do you remember? Go back and listen to that sermon again. He is the divine shepherd king. And with the second feeding miracle, the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, Jesus shows he offers redemption to more than just the covenant people of Israel. That was the lesson. The miracle of the 4,000 is a picture of the dogs being fed after Israel out of the surplus of Jesus' bounty. Out of the surplus of God's gracious salvation bounty, 
in Jesus Christ, there is more than enough bread to go around once Israel has been fed. Gentile salvation fulfills Old Testament prophecy. But all those lessons, they go right over the disciples' heads. They're blind. They don't understand. And this spiritual darkness, this dullness, is characteristic of the disciples at this point. In fact, Mark zeroes in on it like a laser. That and their essentially fledgling nature of faith in the next section of his gospel. His second major section, 822 to 1052. And that section takes us all the way to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem entry when Jesus comes into the week before he dies. But in the second section, we see just how uncomprehending and blind the disciples really are as Jesus three times announces his impending death and what it means to follow a suffering Messiah. But again... Those lessons go right over their heads. He says it to them three times. They don't get it three times in a row. They're blind. They don't understand. Verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? The twelve baskets of bread suggest that Jesus, the Messiah's supply, is so lavish that even the scraps of his provision are enough to meet the needs of the covenant people of Israel. The seven baskets suggest something similar, with seven suggesting fullness and completeness. But in this case, in a Gentile context, it means Jesus the Messiah's bountiful supply is so lavish that even the overflow of his provision is enough to satisfy the needs of all people. All people. On the level of salvation, first and foremost, but on the physical level too. And Don Carson notes, Could not the one who fed many thousands manage to feed a dozen? Shouldn't the disciples trust Jesus' goodness toward them, having seen it so lavishly poured out on others? Who cares about the one loaf? Don't worry about that. In closing, let me appeal to any here today who have not placed their faith in the Gentiles' Messiah. Have you placed your faith in the Gentiles' Messiah? If not, I want to ask, friend, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Do you have ears but fail to hear? Is your heart hardened? I'll ask all those same questions that Jesus asked. Remember the seven basketfuls of scraps. The multiplication of the loaves anticipates Gentiles later sharing in the children's bread. And that time has come. It's come now. It's come in Jesus' death and resurrection and with all the blessings of the new covenant. We've been living in this era now for 2,000 years. Out of the surplus of God's gracious salvation bounty, there's more than enough bread to go around. Jesus the Messiah's bountiful supply is so lavish that even the overflow of his provision is enough to satisfy the needs of all people. All people. So, if that's the case, the warning is this. Beware of the yeast of unbelief. Beware of that sinful disposition to believe in Jesus only if miraculous signs from heaven which compel your faith are first produced. Friend, Jesus isn't about to come down from heaven and perform miracles on demand. Miracles custom-tailored to your 
sinful faithlessness to vindicate his authority. Jesus, I'll believe in you. Just arrange this part of my life first in a miracle, and then I'll believe. No. God raises Jesus from death. That's all the sign we require. And so the Gentiles' Messiah warns you. Jesus warns us all. Beware of the yeast of unbelief. Friend, we have the scriptures. We have the clear testimony of divine revelation. My sermon today has had its faults, but it was a faithful exposition of this text. Don't be foolish. Don't be slow of heart. Repent. Believe. Pray that Jesus would open your eyes. Pray that Jesus would open your mind. He would unstop your deaf ears. Pray that Jesus would grab you by the hand as you lay spiritually dead at the bottom of your pit of sin and shame and pull you out and grant you life. Amen.